Kia ora koutou whanau. Welcome to another edition of the Department of Conversation, making sweet, sweet love in your ear holes since 2018. Gosh, we're going to say 2020. When we're in 2020, it feels like we're going to be a couple of years old in a few weeks. Woohoo! Um, so, today's conversation is with legendary New Zealand filmmaker Rob Sarkis. Broke into the national spotlight with Scarfies, did the Aramoana film Out of the Blue, which I auditioned for and didn't get a part, not that I'm bitter. Um, and of course, Two Little Boys, three feature films, but a bunch of other information and stuff about uh, Rob uh, we will talk about as well. So we had that conversation that'll be coming up for you in a tick. I just want to remind you that we are, we've launched a new website. If you head to www.thedoc.nz, thedoc.nz uh, is our new URL for what we're doing and what we're about. Uh, there's actually a shop there as well if you're interested in getting some merch, help support us. Uh, we are non-monetized, which means everything we do at the moment kind of comes out of our back pocket, for want of a better word. Um, so if you'd like to help contribute to what we do, one of the ways you can do it at the moment is to go and grab a T-shirt or a cap or a mug or a, something like that. Or if you see me in the street, just like buy me a coffee or slip me a 20 or I don't know, anything like that you can do as well. All right, uh, Rob Saki is always a, a hugely fun conversation and here it is for you right now. We are live with Rob Saki. Uh, the, the, the boy done well comes home. Is that a way to put this? Back to Dunedin? Back to, back to your home roots? Yeah, it, it, it does always feel like coming home, coming back here. It's... Um it's weird. It's probably the same experience that everyone has when they come kind of back to their, you know, wherever it was that they were, that they grew up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you just sort of walk the streets. You sort of walk the streets of memory. Uh, you know, you walk the streets. Of, I walk the streets of Dunedin, yeah. uh, as I have been just before coming here, and. Um, you know, you just oh, I shot over there, or oh, I right. was. I remember going to my ukulele lesson over there. You know, all that, and I, I kind of love that because I'm a visual person, yeah. and uh, it's you know I don't do that in Wellington where I live because that's just you know where I live now and has been for a long time. But when I can come back here, I kind of sit into I don't know just a whole lot of different stages of um, of of your life. So um, I mean, uh, Scarfy's iconic Dunedin film. What kind of broke you into the? Uh, I was going to say database of public knowledge. It sounds so wanky, but that's we kind of your first known, easier way to say it, on a national level sort of thing. But then your subsequent two uh, films are also set down here as well. Does that? I mean, obviously, Aramoana was because it's Aramoana and it's down here. But was there something about you know this is my area? I'm going to be the one to tell these stories. This is a place I know, or was it a little bit circumstantial and, and coincidental that this is where it ended up being for the filmmaking side of things? Yeah, it's hard to um, it's it's hard to know. Um, uh, it, 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 what I what I know is it wasn't um, it wasn't a plan. Um, right. the, um, the the you know it, it always made sense to me to you know to I mean I made all my short films down here, so it made sense to to, to work with the same group of people because they've been successful um, yep. all around the world, and uh, and it made sense to work with the same team, and I've. I was very aware before making my first before making Scarfies, I was really aware of how much I didn't know and also how much was at stake. You know, how it's very there's a lot of people around all over the world, but especially in New Zealand, who've really only got the chance to make one feature film because right. their feature film didn't quite hit. And that is not because of raw talent or anything really. It's because you are 
basically at kindergarten again when you're making your first feature film because you've never done it before. Right. And I, um, you know, I recognised that I didn't know a whole lot of stuff and thought that, well, what I do know um, is a lot about Dunedin. I mean, I know, knew a bunch about filmmaking, but I also knew enough about Dunedin to feel like I could make something that at very least felt authentic. Yeah. You know, it felt... Um, anchored in a place rather than sort of uh, kind of drifting in a well, where where are you know where are we so um, and I've and I guess um, I guess that I think that authenticity yeah. even though Scarfies is a completely ridiculous completely made up um, story you know it's obviously contrived yeah uh, it, it's still kind of somehow just because of that attitude and because of my knowledge of the place and and that world anchored itself in a place and 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 I think that anchoring allowed the outrageous aspect of the story to um, to sort of be accepted. It's almost like the low-hanging fruit. You know, what you knew really well, you grabbed onto, and that was a big part of it. Because the, the house that the um, Scarface was filmed in, I heard someone describe it the other day as it was the 660 Castle Street of its, like, like of 15 years ago. Because everyone looks to 660 Castle Street now, obviously because of 660, yeah. but your house, is it? and, and I, don't, I can't remember the address of it, but... It was up high. 49 Brown Street. 49 for, for Brown anyone Street. anyone who's yeah. know, wanting to. Is it still here? I don't know. Is it still here? Because apparently it's up high and it could overlook the whole city and that was a part of the. I, th- I think uh, if you go down the office here and look out the window, you'll see the silhouette. Yeah, it's, so it's still it's there. Here. Is it still an iconic? Just over there. Do you, do you, what about when you see that? Do you kind of go, ah, oh, it's like there's my kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember I, I drove past my kindergarten when I'm, I'm back in Auckland. I go, oh, it, is, it feels a bit the same for you as filmmaking. Uh, well, yeah, of, of course. But I don't think that's any different from... Um, Going back, anyone going yeah. back, going back to their their kindergarten. You know the the the, the difference with um, <laughs> the only difference is that uh, my kindergarten was more public. Yeah. Wow. And so you said you had experience in filmmaking. Um, prior to that, I mean that's a pretty big undertaking. I mean, I look at guys like Tyker, who obviously was a, a was, part of all of that. Yeah. Um, did you do? I don't. Sorry, I'm not a filmmaker. Jason's actually a filmmaker, and he knows the business. But I'm going to say things that don't make any sense to me. You know, the whole AD AP. Had you done a bunch of those before you got into Scarface, or was it like short films into Scarface? So what's AD and AP? I don't know. Assistant director. A, a, is, oh, AD, first AD. You mean oh, like first AD. AD? Right. I see. Oh, AD. AD. I don't AD. know. Yeah. AP isn't it? Like, had you done productions where you you say it was kindergarten, but that implies that was kind of you you jumped in without the knowledge. Had you done a bunch of other stuff on other shoots where you played all the other roles, so to speak? You know. Well, no, no, because I'm. I think a lot of directors are a little bit like this, where I can only speak for myself, but I'm I'm a bit hopeless. Like I'm I'm really. Like not very good at doing anything. Uh, no, and, and, and I'm. <laughs> um, what I mean is that the kind of people who are really great on film crews, like yeah. film crew people, yeah. the crew, are really usually really practical doers. You know, they right. know how to work a bit of equipment, or they know how to get. They and they 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 do things. You know, like I, I mean, I would not rebuild my own house because I would re- honestly just make a complete mess of it yeah. and not really know what I was doing. But I would have, I'd like to think, the vision to imagine what I wanted and the um, people skills, I suppose, in the end to um, to direct or to um, to inspire, which I think is a better word than direct, uh, the crew of people, the architects and the, the builders to, um, to to create the thing that's in my head. There's, there's, so there's, what I'm saying is there's a... 
it's a different kind of person. It's yeah, not yeah. better or worse. I mean, I'd yeah, much yeah. rather be more practical, but it's um, in, in, in many ways. But I'm, you know, I mean, we're, you speak to artists all the time and they're kind of dreamers. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, sometimes you meet people. You don't people, want too many dreamers in one room. Sometimes you meet people and you kind of go, I can't work you out. What? And then you find out they're an artist and you go, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. penny has dropped. What, talking about being a visual person, I'm a, not like you, but I'm a visual person as well. As you're describing that, what I'm seeing is like, more so in the UK for their, their top league football teams, they have the manager and they have a team of 20 coaches beneath them and they are the ones who sort of inspire the other coaches to go and coach the actual players being sort of the actors on the stage. So it's almost like a managerial role of getting those those technical skill set people together to make the final product, to play the game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not it's, – it's, it's not um, – it's not – it's different from managerial, but I think it, it uh, because managerial suggests um, sort of a, an organisational approach. Yeah. Um, I think the analog, the coach analogy is quite a good one, right. though, because you know you think of what a <laughs> you think of what a great coach is. A great coach is someone who um, gets the best out of their team. It's, in the end, that's yeah. it, and can and can inspire them to 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 be their best through and maybe even to perform beyond their best sometimes. Yeah, and I mean. You know, if I if I boil it down, what I'm always trying to do when I uh, establish a new team to, for for a new film, because usually it's a new team every time, because yep. people are you know often everyone's freelance. Um, you're you are you're trying to firstly convince them that this thing that they're making is going to be great, uh, because people will go a long way if they think it's going to be great, and and then you're uh, inspiring them. To the vision of that mm. you've got in your script, because I, you know, I know kind of what I'm making, because <laughs> you've written the script and you've thought about it a lot, but you're also um, enabling them to bring as much of their creativity to the process, right? So it's not a, um, it's a, and and over the over the years, I, I I do this more and more. It's like you realise that well, you get the most out of people. Yeah. You really do when you. Um, you, you give them a lot of freedom within boundaries. And, and in a way, with film, the boundary is the script. And we were all telling I mean, a lot of filmmakers, particularly young directors, are really, they kind of get a bit um, paranoid and worried about, um, oh, it's got to be, it's got to be my vision, you know, my, you know, because that's, that's sort of where the media puts their focus mm-hmm. on the central, the central person. And the thing, the thing is that, no matter what happens, it will be your vision. Yeah. Because all of those other people who, you know, a hundred people or a thousand people, if you're Peter Jackson, (laughs) or Taika, are feeding into, um, are are feeding their ideas that are inspired by your vision in the first place. Mm -hmm. They're feeding them through you and and what you are as a director is basically a filter for those ideas, right? Wow. Um, You don't need to have all the ideas, right? You just need to be a really good filter and have a, strong core idea in the first place that allows those people to be inspired if it's a shit idea everyone will do shit work you know if it's not on this page it's not on the stage it's it's, it's true but you've got to go yeah it's and and that's actually what i love about it it's do you um it's it's interesting you've mentioned you know the script and on the page so much are you a a director who kind of goes right we've we've got it in the can let's play for 20 minutes now and and let the actors kind of feel their way out with a bit of improv and stuff as well? Or are you one of the guys who wants to keep to the script? Um, kind of more and more the latter. Um, but in the past, um, just through, uh, I don't know, just being... <laughs> actually, in the past, 
when I started, when I did my short films, and with a, it was a group of us in Dunedin who who made them together. I just happened to be the writer and the director. Yep. Um, uh, what we would do, well, we had to pretty much pay for our own film stock because we're talking about the you know the eighties and and particularly the nineties uh, where everything was shot on film. Right. Mm-hmm. We didn't have. I mean, we did have video, but video was a bit shit back yeah. then. It was different, <laughs> different, different to the digital of today, which is amazing. And so, you know, every time you pushed that button on my last, say, my last short film, signing off, every time you pushed that, that button, yeah, but big money. Yeah, like it's right. it's a roll of film back then was from memory about three hundred dollars for the for the roll of film, which is how long, like time wise, three minutes twenty seconds. A roll of film is. Three and a half minutes. Three yeah. minutes, and it's a four hundred foot roll of film is three. Yeah, and um, so and it will cost you about three hundred dollars to How buy. How do you feel? Buy, anything that's longer than that? To then? buy the well, you don't in one take. You know. Okay. <laughs> oh no, you, you can, can. You, you can do. Kind you can splice four hundred mil rolls into like big mags, but you have got to have like a really great loader. Oh, and right. Yeah, no, we've done. I mean, out of the blue, we had these great big yeah. thousand foot you know, rolls, but you can. Yeah, um, so three hundred dollars for the roll of film. Yeah. And then another three hundred dollars to process it, yeah, right. and print it. So you know, six hundred dollars per three, approximately per, but with no exaggeration, per three minutes, right? That, that makes you uh, quite paranoid about sort of well, buttoning on, buttoning off, yeah. quickly. And 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 tr- it meant that you really needed to truly imagine the film in your head, yeah. Um, and then just go out to get what you wanted and get that bit, get that 10 seconds and do it in just a few takes because every take is costing you money. Now, I'm not saying that I was too consciously always thinking about the money because that would just be, um, that would just completely kind of screw you up. You wouldn't be able to do anything. You'd go, oh, God. <laughs> oh, you know, just like feeding money into the camera yeah, like yeah, some yeah. sort of machine. But essentially, that's what you're doing. Um, and really, that was all of my short films were were kind of like that, very controlled, very um, and you know, and I had a strong vision in my head for them, and we went out and we made that, and and the films were good. Uh, I don't think the films were ever better than what I'd imagined. Right. They were exactly as I'd imagined, right? Yeah. The diff- so so when we when we came to um, Scarfies, um, I and this is still. The world of film, yep. sixteen mil film, yep. but with a vital, important difference that someone else was paying for it, right? <laughs> Principally, the New Zealand Film Commission. Yeah, um, I elected to shoot that film on sixteen mil because it's a smaller format and cheaper, right? Than, much cheaper than thirty five mil. So you you get you know double the amount of film for right. six hundred dollars. Um, actually, about ten minutes per yeah. Um, and um, I did that because I wanted to have a healthy disrespect for the film stock. Like I wanted to <laughs> yeah, consciously, yeah, yeah. in order to not fuck up my first feature film, yeah. I wanted to be able to shoot shitloads and and enable, therefore enable the cast to play, right? And can kind of gather material. And it's interesting because, you know, I was definitely doing that in 1998, right? And that's exactly what everyone is doing now now that we only shoot on digital. Yeah, because of so course you can then just wipe over it, can't you, and keep going and keep going, like the digital. Yeah, well, you don't even wipe over it. You just, you just, keep, you just keep going. It's, you, the, the, the cost is the time, you know, not the, not the film stock. And, yeah, so I think that was um, kind of part of what, um, at, at the time, gave that film its energy because we were, um, we were able to really loosen things up and do quite a lot more 
kind of playing with you know with the actors on set and of course you've got people like you know Tyka and Willa and like really great exp- and in the case of Willa really experienced people a kind of a, a real great mixture of experience and you know we were able really able to um, um, play yeah. which is what how it should be and and the, the great thing is it's how it is now on most sets I um it brings in you, even though when you talk about other people paying for it, it doesn't, not that it doesn't matter so much, but it takes a weight off. I always wondered, and I think it's because of their brilliance in writing, um, I always thought groups like Monty Python would be experimenting and going off here, and, and they don't. They were really true to the script. I saw an interview, it might have been with John Cleese, talking about they spent all that time you know, writing together to get it right, and then it was you fucking stick to the script, and they weren't improv guys at all. Really, I, I, I mean, no. Um, I mean, I'm 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 not really either. Mm. Um, um, but I, but I see. In fact, with in fact, the way we created Scarfies, and we did the same for Two Little Boys several years later, was we started with an improvisation process. So we had a um, right at the beginning, um, before we'd even written the script, we got a group of. It was um, six actors that we knew. You know, in fact, Brett McKenzie was among them. He was, yeah. just, you know, um, guy that we knew. When, when you mentioned <laughs> his name, now aren't you supposed to say Oscar winner? Isn't that part of the rules? You have yeah, to put it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Except you know, <laughs> he's kind of a mate. So you know. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and it's funny looking back. It's like all, all this talent was in yeah. Wellington at this, at this particular time, and my brother was, you know, was amongst all that because he was writing plays at that at that point. Anyway, we got a bunch of people in a room. And for two days, um, I don't think I, I don't think we even paid them. It was kind of a fun thing. Yep. And because um, we didn't have any money, <laughs> and um, and just went right. Your flatmates, and then we just kind of kept on feeding them kind of provocations. You've just found this house with uh, with free electricity. That's awesome, isn't it? Why mm. don't you move in? And then we just let them chat and kind of figure out their their flat dynamics. You know, based on. Um, well, but not based on their personalities, but based on the personalities that they wanted to bring into it, and um, and uh, and then um, you know at a certain point, because you know I already knew, or my brother and I already knew the story that we yep. were wanting to tell, but we were wanting to have to give the actors the freedom to kind of to find it, and we'd just go on little tangents with them. So it seems like more of an amalgamation between your creativity and the actors themselves who are adding to adding to your story. Oh well, well actually. In many ways, creating it because right. the story, the story was the provocation. Like at a certain point, after we'd established their characters, you know, I led them down. It was my I had a warehouse flat in Wellington, and you know, led them down a hallway, and then opened a door to what in fact was an empty room, and said, "Well, this is the basement of the house," and then just described that it's full of full of marijuana. Yeah, right? <laughs> and so you, like, like it's mum, it's like it was mumblecore before the term mumblecore existed. Really, you kind of almost did mumblecore before it was even a thing. You You'll know, need like to explain whole, mumblecore to those of us who don't have a clue what you're talking about. Yeah, just film nerd would term. Yeah, <laughs> mumblecore has become more popular these days. Sort of. Um, the directors know what they want in the story, but they basically say, right, very, very vaguely, they'll say, right, actor, this is kind of what the scenes, the, what kind of needs to happen in the story for story, in the scene for story-wise, but how we get there, totally up to you. Do what we feel. I remember, like, for example, I'm sorry, I'm kind of taking over a little bit, but there's this, there's this Mumblecore film that I just saw called uh, Drinking Buddies, um, which has got, like, um, 
uh, Olivia Wilde and and I've completely forgotten the name of, but they're they're in a scene and like he thought the scene was kind of they kind of alluded to that maybe you should go skinny dipping together. Um, and in the moment while the camera was rolling, he was like, you know what, that actually doesn't feel like what my character would do, and so he didn't. She went, but he just stayed on the beach and kind of just left, mm. and it became part of the story. And is know? that when the shark comes and gets and, her? And eats her, yeah. But basically, because <laughs> I've had film, the friends have made mumblecore films in like New York and stuff, and it's just yeah, it's just. Let the actors be actors and kind of improv and just so kind is, of make is, the story up. So is Mumblecore sort of a, a modern way of saying we're going to find the story together as kind a collaboration? Yeah. Or is it just meaning it's completely improv? No, it's not improv. completely. No, the director has an overarching story right, okay. they want to tell, but how they get there is sort of up to the actors in a way and the director collaborating. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's related. Um, it's very, rela- it's very related, um, but with... Um, and look, it's not like this is new. You know, Mike Lee's been working in this way for decades, yeah. really. It's like and you wrote it in a mumblecore yeah. way, whereas they they made the film in a mumblecore way. You wrote it in a mumblecore way, but then made it in a traditional sense. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So, the, but what that what that did is it um, it gave a, a lot of um, well, just gave us a lot of material. Yeah. Because we recorded all that, and not that we we didn't actually listen back to the recordings, but we remembered. Uh, we, I think the hardest thing about making anything on making a film is all I can talk about, is that you're starting from nothing. You know, you start, it, the whole thing is so ephemeral because you're starting from uh, like just just the... An idea? A right? tiny idea, often just not even an idea, often just a right. kind of a, a gut instinct that then can become an idea. And and it's it's almost nothing, but it's going to become... Something, or you so, hope it's so going to become give, something. Give me an example. And this was a way to, to sorry, just for, to finish. Yeah, this this was a way um, of turning that nothing into something before we had all the pressure of having to write a script. Right, right. Immediately, we just started writing the script, writing the script, and it was it was easy. It was fast. What was the like? Can you remember way back to the Scarface situation? Like, what was the that first idea? That first kind of ah, you know that that the even pre idea that was the start of that film for you? Oh yeah, it was. Um, I mean, I, I can't remember the, the the moment that I kind of had it, had the thought, but um, it was a it was just a simple what if? You know, what if you what if you found a bunch of marijuana in your basement and sold it and the original owner returned and you locked them in the basement. Yeah. Like what would, you know, it was just a simple um, what if provocation, you know. I, I mean, I used to do even lists of what ifs when I was, you know, when I was when I was young because, you know, what if you were stuck in a lift and there was a crocodile in there? And that, yeah, that, that can be a story that, a what if that turns into the story. Well, totally, because there, there, there was enough, um, I call it... Um, Sort of dramatic juice. There was yeah. enough dramatic juice in that what if yeah. that that could feed a story. You yeah, know? there was enough. Um, there was enough, clearly enough dramatic juice. Even though it's a very different film and a real story, but there's enough dramatic juice in the story of uh, David Gray and the Aramana shootings. Yeah, right. Truth is um, that that could feed a story, so, a, a true story in that case. So you're not having to force anything. Right, yeah. the story because you're kind of starting with this a kind of a powerhouse. The story is then able to unfold yeah. rather than you have to kind of keep giving it these sort of power injections to to kind of keep it going. You know, it just it's you know I mean a lot of writers will say, well, at a certain point the story starts telling itself. Yeah, well, okay. it probably does that because they started with 
an idea that it's, it's too simple to say a strong idea because what's strong it's subjective but a kind of an idea whatever the idea is that has dramatic juice do you ever get people speaking of scarf should market that eh? yeah like, it's not dr- bad actually. dramatic juice dramatic you know? juice yeah. juice.com mm. go grab it jace um it's probably gone <laughs> um do you ever get people not linking like they're the same but finding that they like um scarfies and they like shallow grave that they kind of got the element of finding something and having to make decisions. This was money and a dead. Um, yeah, I mean, sort of there was at the time there was a not, lot. Not that they're connected. I'm not saying that there's no hint of that at all. I'm just saying to me they feel like I, yeah, they were they're an enjoyable genre kind of together. Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly at the time it's. Um, I mean, the weird thing is I was. I don't think we were conscious of shallow. We were definitely conscious of shallow grave because we could see when we were you know building Scarfies, we could see some of the parallels, but we were, right. um, uh, if anything, most conscious of not making it Shallow Grave. Yeah, of course. You know, I mean, it's hard because, I mean, Shallow Grave, like, it's a fantastic film. Danny Ball's just the most amazing director and, you know, um, and then to follow it up with Train Spotting. I mean, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just basically love all his work. But uh, we definitely weren't trying to be... Um, like we had the idea, I think I had, I yeah, had I'm not, the I'm idea not hinting you're trying to be a New Zealand shallow grave. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying they're in that same kind of ilk of, you know, people who like a certain kind of film must probably like both of them. Well, you know, to be, yeah, and to be to be fair, I mean, Cascafis is like, you know, it's not like, it, it's be, kind of become this sort of culty thing in, in Dunedin, for, for time in New Zealand and certainly in Dunedin. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's, as I said, it's a kindergarten film. It's not the greatest film at all. Um, but it did do very well. At the time, both in New Zealand and it, you know, it sold pretty widely for what it was over overseas as well. Yep. And and I was even aware at the time that it wasn't really selling because it was um, some great film. You know, it was selling because, in a way, people overseas could put it in a box. You know, they could go, oh, oh it's right. a bit like. You know? Oh, and, okay. And were, were you concerned? Like, I know that it's maybe it's more of a concern these days. But were you concerned, or would it even cross your mind that you're worried about becoming a genre director because your first film was a genre film, for lack of a better term, being on that sort of, you know, out of any category, I've always found that I think horror is the one that's you know people go, you're a horror director or you're. A, everything else director it seems to be a lot of people seem to kind of get that stuck in that mindset and sort of end up getting pigeonholed did, did that cross your mind or were you just like I'm making a film and this is what my film and this is it just happens to be a horror film <laughs> well it's not a horror film would be my answer to that and um, I've I've never it's definitely not a horror film and it's um, it's not a comedy um, would it be a black comedy you'd say loosely com- you'd say it's a black comedy but I don't think black comedy is a genre in fact yeah, right. um, um, international Sales agents and distributors are, are pretty um, wary of black com- right. comedies generally because they're they're hard they're actually hard to pigeonhole. There's all sorts of I love black comedies, but they're, they're not really a, a, a they're not they're not really a genre. Um, I wasn't aware of that at the time when we were making it, uh, but um, we took it to Sundance and um, <laughs> took it to Sundance around about the same time that you know Harvey Weinstein was being very dodgy in hotel rooms and uh, you know of course in your dream as a you're not saying you had a meeting with Harvey I did not have a meeting with Harvey <laughs> just, so just that's, go um, and make yourself more comfortable out there Rob to, to, totally <laughs> totally the wrong sex for that <laughs> but um, um, but it was you know but I remember it was um, the um, it was Miramax was the you know every you sort of dreamed of getting a deal with, with Miramax yeah. and, you know you'd like oh imagine if you got to meet Harvey and you know in the lift you know do your elevator pitch quick but <laughs> <laughs> um, and definitely had, um, I mean, had, you know, you get an eight, this, you quickly get 
an agent and you get people who you know and um and you know quickly started having all these kind of meetings with you know hollywood types um so that's because you're showing at sundance in the sundance area it happens like literally while you're there or uh, the weeks after both okay both you do you do you go to sundance you do a bunch of meetings there you go to la and do a bunch of meetings there and and i could see that there was that the stuff that i was being offered Mm -hmm. was in the horror genre so you so you're 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 right and i i yeah no i've I've got no interest in the horror genre (laughs) uh, or of making a genre kind of picture i'd much rather try and make things that you know cross genres you know uh, that that are that, that that are sort of a little bit hard to pigeonhole so know. is that what a black comedy is not that they're black comedies it's that they cross genres i mean jojo rabbit for example there was moments of that where i was not literally figuratively pissing myself laughing but there's a couple of moments no spoilers where i was like deeply in shock as well in that movie like a couple of things hit you from out of the, have you seen it yet uh, to, to, um, sorry Taika not yet no um, okay just, just so I'm, I'm not yeah, no, no, still spoilers. Those, so I'm, yeah. no spoilers um, but that was like you know I mean tragedy I mean they say comedy is what tragedy plus time but in that movie there is tragedy and there is comedy and there is confronting tragedy as well shocking shocking stuff this is this is this is the thing about genre it's like it's a word that's been created by people who look at films after they're made you mm-hmm. know like it's 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 and it's sort of what we do as human beings it's really natural but it's also not i think not that productive um or often not that productive creatively you know because yeah. like i think it's really restrictive personally to to just go right i'm making this genre right now ultimately whatever you make it it needs to f- fit within it, it is going to be packaged in some way you know you've got a it's either going to be a mcdonald's burger or it's going to be a I don't know. Uh, Reburger, yeah, already. Yeah, it's gonna, yeah, so, <laughs> so it's gonna, or... it's gonna find its packaging. But yeah. ultimately, you know, when you think of a of a Taika Waititi film, yeah, um, it's a Taika Waititi film. Yeah, what the hell is Thor Ragnarok? Yeah, and you're pissing yourself laughing. And it's got the biggest action scenes, and it's sci-fi, and it's everything. It, and 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 it's him. It's yeah. a kind of a it's a it's an embodiment of all of Taika's sensibilities. Which, oh, isn't that crazy? As a result, everything he makes is celebrated, you know, because mm-hmm. he's found a way to. Um, I mean, he's great, but he's also found a way to have um, give his funders uh, the confidence to just let him do his thing. And I mean, if, if and in if, doing that, he's given himself the freedom to do what he wants. It's almost like he would. I don't know if he's literally said this. I feel like I've heard him say this. Maybe I've heard someone else say it about him. It's like, you know, I'll do I'll do two for them and then one for me. Yeah. Like I'll do two for the studios and then I get to do JoJo or you know whatever it is. Although you'll probably find I could look it up actually. I don't know what the box office has been for JoJo Red, but but I'm sure it's been pretty incredibly good. Yeah. successful. Yeah. Yeah. And and well. It makes. I mean, you know, I haven't seen it. I mean, I, I know what it is, yeah. and I and and I hugely respect you know all the people who are in it, including the cast. So you know, I know it's going to be great. Yeah. Um, but more importantly than great, I know it's going to be original. You know, it's going to be you're going to be hanging out with a human being. Mm-hmm. You know, a funny, ridiculous, insane. You know, uh, uh, and 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 a human being with real heart, which mm-hmm. I think is the actually the the primary thing about Tyker's films that I love there's heart in all of them you know you know there's there's, t- there's a tenderness sitting there mm. you know, be, uh, underneath all of the all of the comedy and well if I go to the movies or sit down at Netflix or whatever I want to hang out with a human being yeah you know I don't want to hang out with a corporation and I feel more and more like um like the, the films that Hollywood make yeah <laughs> as a 
speaking very generally, uh, you know, just they're empty to me many, many times. It feels like you're hanging out with a corporation. Whenever, whenever they let a human being make a film and put their originality and their, you know, the, something of themselves in it, it's like, oh, what a, what, a, what a breath of fresh air. Of course, this is less of a problem nowadays because there's so many more low-budget films made yep. by actual human beings who aren't corporations. So and because you know, thing, we're, we're in an interesting time. Things like you were saying that 300 for three minutes, 300 to, um, to then develop it. So you're paying 200 bucks a minute. For for film, that's not even on the screen. That's just to to literally film it mm. um, is no, is no longer a barrier. I mean, look at what we do. I mean, this kind of stuff um, would have been done in a two hundred thousand dollar you know TV studio twenty years ago. Yeah, and, and so it's that it's that that barrier still is looks, now. This still looks pretty flash. In a New York, but our little Sony, yeah. our little Sony cameras aren't anything where near what they'd be um, off offshore. Yeah, well, that's the no, thing. I've, true, I've yeah. said several times to like friends, you know, the films that I made in high school with, you know, like high eight digital cameras, you know, because we didn't even have the luxury of film, we couldn't even shoot Super Eight like you know Peter Jackson and stuff did, um, were terrible quality because it was video. And I'd say, you know, if I was a kid, like if I looked at technology now, like as in, with some kind of special time machine, I'd, I'd murder. I'd probably literally murder somebody for a cell phone mm. for what we can shoot on our iPhone now because it's yeah. just so much better. And so that you know that gets into the whole thing of democratizing. Democ- Whatever the word is, the film industry, because you don't need bringing democracy to the film. You don't film need two hundred dollars a minute to shoot a film. Well, the, the, you know that's that that's true, and um, and and isn't isn't it a great thing? You know, however, you know, are there, you know, are there more great films being made now? I don't. This is an open question. Yeah. Are there more great films being made now than were made in the? I don't know the sixties or well, the nineties. I remember, 90s. I remember I mean, my parents talking about television in the seventies and eighties, and they were saying we always got the best of the world mm. because there was only a certain number of slots it could fit into because there was only two and then three channels. So we we had the best television in the world because you didn't have any crap. And now that there's eighty channels, they got to fill them all with something. So the flip side to democratizing filmmaking is you're going to get a lot more shit as well because. I can't, I'm not going to get the quote right, but someone said that the problem with either YouTube or the internet is it gives everyone the impression that what they've got to say is important, and it's not. Not everyone's got something important to say. So you have the uh, easy access to the technology and to get your voice out there or to get your film out there and stuff, but it equally, if everyone can do it, those gems are probably going to be harder to find amongst all the other noise, so to speak. Yeah, that's That's true, and from a... I think that's true, and from a filmmaker's perspective, it's it's beca- it becomes much more difficult to to be seen as, yeah. a, as a result because you're you know, like, you know as you've just said it, there's lots of grains of sand out there now, yeah, yeah. and um, you know you, I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of people making, for example, um, you know, web series. Yep, um, that's a thing, and um, and some of them are great, right? But I, but I feel like even the great ones, it's almost a waste because they're not seen enough, you know, because right. there's too much stuff because it's, it's so hard to get cut through. And, you know, and, and we still live in a world where the way that you get cut through is to spend money, you know. If you can spend money, you know, like basically in film, have a distributor. So the marketing of it. it totally. Is being, is, I, I, again, I'm, I'm, I, always, I always say this. I heard somewhere... Um, I'm just trying to think because it'll come to me, the the film in question. Anyway, uh, saying that basically the budget for the film might have been three million, whatever, but then they basically spent twice the budget again on marketing that film. Whatever the numbers were, they spent more on the marketing of the film 
than actually what they spent on the film itself. Well, I, don't, I can't see what brand of shoes you're wearing, but it'll be the same for those. I'm a bare feet. Ah, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> and my dandles are down there. Well, they, they say that you know they, they say that about um, uh, Beats headphones. You know, Beats headphones are technically as good as something like Sennheiser, um, but they have about a thirty or forty percent markup, and all of that money goes on um, on marketing. Um, you know, even though they were. You know, they carry the Dre name. It's it's still yeah. most of that machine was them giving away free headphones to famous people, so they're always on the TV. They're always being worn by famous people. Just well, they spend most of the R and D on marketing rather than actually getting. Well, the I, headphones. I was just going to say the sponsorship deal we had lined up with Beats has just been crushed, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, yeah. It's crushed by the fact that you're wearing AKGs and Sennheisers, <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's arguable that they're as good as Sennheisers. But anyway, we'll, we'll move on. Yeah, exactly. I know I'm, I'm very much a Sennheiser. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about Almoana. So I moved to Dunedin five years ago. To me, living in the North Island. This is, is this, this feels like the moment um, in the Prince Andrew interview where um, like it's all kind of light and bubbly at the start and then, you know, it's going to kind of go, you know, he's going to, yeah. I haven't yeah. seen that interview yet, but it sounded pretty oh, cool. you've got to see that interview. That's and I, he stepped back from everything. And you know, it's, you know how you know it's bad if you're a royal? You know it's bad if American comedians are joking about you. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that means it's not just an isolated Commonwealth story. It's gone far bigger than that. It was, it was, um, <laughs> it's, it's compelling. To well, the reason that. I want to talk to you about the Aramoana thing is I auditioned for Aramoana. Oh, crap. For the film. right. <laughs> <laughs> And you just don't have the physique for David Gray. You know? <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I I found it fascinating. Were you in Dunedin? Did you say no? No, no, no. no. I was in Auckland. Yeah, um, and I auditioned for it up there. Yeah, um, to an agent and or whatever, and a, a casting agent in Ponsonby somewhere. Um, you were great, by the way. It was a close run thing. Do you know what I it? found most amazing about that audition? And this is kind of maybe coming back to the human thing. Mm. I walked in there and they said, "What do you remember about Aramoana? And that was the question. Before anything happened, I was like, what do you remember? And I was like, sheesh. So I went, um, I vividly remember, like I, today I, I can still see it as, I, as, I, as I'm talking to you, uh, TVNZ News having a long shot from on top of the hill down the street whilst things were going on and cutting back to, oh man, her name's just jumped out of my head, uh, Angela Diordney with a gap in the teeth. <laughs> oh, no, no, it might have been... It might have been who was the mother of the nation? Used to be on the news with, well before Hillary. And they just jumped out of my head. Oh, as well. the one that got half naked on TV at one point. No, no, no. That was Angela Diordney. Um, no, and no, you're talking about. Um, oh, yeah, I'm doing it as well. The mother of the nation. We know. We know. Oh, here that is. Um, It'll come. Jason will find. Yeah, TVNZ yeah. News yeah. host in the 1990s. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's great. Coming back, and her eyes were red. Like red and puffy and red because obviously they'd been watching the whole feed mm. and she had been bawling her eyes out and then come back to tell the nation about what's been going on. That was the only imagery I had of Aramoana before I moved to Dunedin. And I remember going out there for the first time and going, shit, this is just, this place has a heaviness to it. You can feel it, can't you? But you know mm. what? I love it mm. out there, Aramoana. We go out there. Well, when I say regularly, I was going to say a lot. A lot might be three or four times a year. Walk the mole, you know, go look for seals. And there's something about that little place that is just darling. But obviously making a film about, I guess at that point, New Zealand's worst shooting tragedy, certainly one of, certainly not now, unfortunately. Mm. Um, how do you 
go about that because that was made in Aramoana. I watched the highlights again of the thing last night and I could see that because now living down here I, I recognise places of course being from out of Dunedin you didn't recognise the places and, and how does that path go and how do you like the locals especially how do you tell that story and still be sort of sensitive to these people who are living there when this, this happened carefully yeah. um, carefully and um, and with the right heart I think you know, with the right um, kind of with a, I guess, with a pure intention behind um, behind it, so that you're not. I mean, I was. I mean, it's, it was an interesting. Um, it was an it was an amazing project. But um, when I was when I was first approached, I was, and I've, I first was approached by a producer who uh, kind of showed me the book that he had optioned and was wanting to base this film on and I read the book and um, I hadn't read that book before I'd been in Dunedin during the Aramwana um, kind of thing and had watched the documentaries and things that had been made and you know obviously um, you know like you was you know felt affected by it and in, in the way it's, there is a parallel to you know to what happened in Christchurch this year mm. which is that um, back then it was also a moment where where everything seemed to shift in New Zealand because suddenly we were connected in a negative way with other similar events that had been happening uh, in other parts of yeah. the world, particularly yeah, yeah. you know America, Australia, and, and and Britain that had all had their mass murders. But but we were. I remember looking at the Sydney Morning Herald, um, uh, which was it had an article um, the day New Zealand lost its innocence, right? In in relation to Aramwana, and I I. I, I I saw very similar headlines around the world um, after, after, after Christchurch, Christchurch this, this year. So, you know, it's, a, it's, it's the, the two, yeah, the, the two stories have a, you know, have a, have a sad connection. I mean, an obvious connection with the, mm. you know, the, the gun violence and, um, you know, although I find the Christchurch thing even more disturbing uh, on, on lots of levels. It's hard when you start to kind of rate tragedies, but I understand what you're saying. It's mm. like just pure number of victims and perhaps the it's not that it's the actual the you know, it's the racial behind hatred it, yeah, under the, the, the thing behind it. it um but in terms of you know so um you know when when i was approached by this producer and i read the material and i could see that it would it would make a compelling film i could see the the sort of film that could potentially be made and i actually thought that that would be terrible if that sort of film was made, wow! Uh, and you know, I, I knew this producer pretty well. Um, I knew that you know he would he would make it. He would find a way to make it because he's very driven, and um, and and he already had spent money optioning the the book. I presume he spent money optioning the book. So, um, um, so it was a sort of a well, do I do I climb on board this and um, and put my take on it yeah. to um, you know a make a make a strong film yeah. but but b um make the right kind of film you know um so it it, it um it didn't do more damage it, um, it feels like you being concerned about that kind of film being made probably made you the best person to make that film because the sensitivities would have been there oh, it's like people who say i don't ever want to be a politician often are very good people to be politician because they're not doing it for the reason of being a politician um 
uh, well, yeah, I mean, other people could have made that film, but yeah, I was probably a good, um, I mean, I was, in a way, I was an unusual choice, the director of Scarfies, you know, kind of then making this, I mean, it's a very unusual choice, but I've, I've always been fascinated by true stories. I've got a history yeah. degree. I've, you know, uh, my, some of my earlier, much earlier short films were kind of, you know, I mean, I, I have often gone for serious stories. It just didn't look like it when people saw my short films or Scarfies because right. I'd made a choice to do stuff that was um, kind of, more more entertainment, I suppose, over 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 um, kind of you know powerful truth. Yeah. Um, and if anything, I've kind of you know headed down towards the more powerful truth route, or I've mm-hmm. sort of I've yin yanged between between the two. Um, but you know, yeah. So my my intent. So when I reread the material, um, thinking about um, what this could be, you know, I, I just had a strong instinct that this could be a film about community and not in a not in a, not in a negative way. Even though it's a, it's a very, very sad story. Because mm. I saw, you know, a huge amount of positives, and I, uh, in it, and I saw there's something about the isolation of that community, the way that community had to work as a community. Um, you know, people helping people to to escape. The way um, David Gray was actually a member of the community. Mm. You know, and um, and uh, you know, he was people's next door neighbor. And yeah. he, you know, it, that it that was more interesting to me than some some nutter coming in from outside because you know the um it's not to lay blame but we you know we we kind of grow these people yeah you know or they grow and or and we allow them to grow and they're shaped in part i think in in that case by the isolation you know of you know and you know he was a you know he was probably quite mentally unwell for quite a long time but you know he, he still he was part of the community everyone in Aramwana knew him he wasn't some stranger and the police in that story what made them distinctive was they were part of the community as well you know they 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 knew the victims personally you know? mm. so um yeah I felt that there was a I don't know a, a positive or at least a, a cathartic story that could be could could be kind of well, I felt it. What if it could be framed as a positive, cathartic story? If I did it, it could be framed as a um, I don't know, a kind of shoot up the bad guy, or bad guy shoots up a community and police come in and shoot him up story. If if it was handled the wrong way, and I saw one being positive and one being negative, right. and I pitched my version to the producer, they loved it, and um, and and I think because of that. Um, because it was coming, it was coming from a really genuine place of not wanting to harm people, which isn't to say that, you know, that people. Um, I mean, people were very concerned about the film, and um, and you know, people probably there are some there are people that that feel like it did more harm than good. Right. You know? I mean, I can't speak for I can't speak for other people. All I can speak for is myself, as I tried <laughs> to do um, to do more good than harm. And you know, and I, you know, I had to sort of soft. I had to had to justify it to myself as well, because I, you know, I don't, I don't, I wasn't, <laughs> I, I didn't want to end up as a horror director, and equally didn't want to end up as a, I don't know, an exploited, an exploitative yeah, yeah, yeah. director in, in another exploitative filmmaker in, a, in in a whole other way, which is a whole lot worse than horror. At least horror is imaginary. Yeah. Um, and and what I when, I when I kind of boil that down um, as in terms of kind of justification for it all, I've, I felt that I felt and really feel strongly that um, that on a personal level, if we don't 
tell our stories, if we sort of bottle them up and just keep them in a dark place in our heart um, and just kind of try and bury them, um, they actually eat us from the inside. The sort of the, you know, the, the, it's, in a way, I think it's what story is so often. It's a way for us as people, as families, as societies and cultures and whole countries, it's a way for us to process the things that have happened to us, right? To yeah. understand often things that can't be understood, right? But we use story, and we have forever, like myths and legends, they're all stories to help process the, the things we can't under, understand. And, and, and that's, in the end, I think, why sometimes it is important to tell these, some, sometimes it's important to tell these darker stories because they help us understand ourselves. And also, you, you tell a story, and it releases that energy. You know, it stops it being, this sort of dark. And, you know, I had a great experience showing the film to um, to the Aramwana community afterwards. Wow. And in most cases, and in many cases, people were coming up to me and and thanking me, you know, sometimes just thanking me with their eyes, you know, just like it was very sombre. It was, you know, full on for them to relive it, of course. But um, I could feel that there was somewhat of a release. It's like it was out there. It's no longer just our story. Others can share in it. Yeah. Others can... Take some of the burden? Well, I think there was something... Well, maybe I'm self-deluded. <laughs> I might be. I might be just self-deluded, self-justifying. But I've, I felt that in the end, there was something cathartic yeah. about the fact that that film had been made. Was there ever... I was thinking about um, the physical shooting of it. Um, it's probably a bad word to use. Be a word in the shooting we'll talk about the Aramayan, I think, but the actual well, filming. It's one of, of the. Um, um, it's one of the things we were very aware of, actually. Um, at the time, we... Because um, the thing that... That the first AD that you mentioned um, always calls out uh, before you start you know, rolling the cameras is very loudly shooting, and yeah. uh, we thought, well, we're taking them. We can't use that word. So well, I was more thinking rolling. about like actual the. I was going to say the action shots, not to minimise it, but of actual yeah. guns firing, etc. In Aramoana, did, uh, did that actually happen, or did you have a? That was it in post that you did that. Were there, you know, like obviously you know, um, blanks, but. Were there gunshots going off in Aramoana, and how did you handle that? Was obviously the local because it's a small settlement; everyone would have heard them. Uh, we we didn't shoot that stuff in Aramoana. We shot okay. it, um, but we didn't. We shot it pretty close. We shot it um, in um, Long Beach, which is really just over the hill. It's, yep. a long, it's a reasonably long drive, but it's not actually <laughs> not far. Was that a conscious decision because partly because of what I've just hinted at, or was it just a better location to to film there? Um, oh no, it was a, con a okay. totally conscious decision, and and also. Um, there, there was no desire to um, to kind of um, further traumatize. Right. Know? So it's yeah, it, absolutely. It, it, yeah. So, um, but I did want to represent Aramwana, the place, as accurately as possible. So you know, so we did definitely do filming in Aramwana. We just didn't do any of the um, the you know, those sorts of scenes there. Um, you as a filmmaker. Um, what else? What else happens in life? I'm thinking, because I'm thinking, what Scarface was ninety six. That is the yeah. question. Yeah, Scarface was ninety six, and number three is Turtle Boys in twenty twelve. Yeah, uh, so it's been twenty three years since Scarface. Three feature films. Ninety six? No, it was ninety. It was ninety nine. Was it ninety nine? Yeah. Okay, so twenty yeah. years. Yeah, in the last twenty years. Yeah, three feature films. Mm. Um, I mean, without getting into your personal business stuff, how does one pay the pay the bills and stuff? With what do you, what else happens between all the movie shooting for you and 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 work wise? What do you do? Well, it's not just movies. I mean, just movies are the the thing that um, for some reason um, 
directors get um, when you make a movie known and you're for? the director. Yeah, get known yeah. for. You, if you make a movie and you're the director, you're the one that you know kind of fronts it. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I've done a whole bunch of uh, television stuff, right? Um, particularly over the last seven years. So you're busy directing all the time. Uh, I'm either directing or I'm uh, I'm I'm in development writing, right? Or working with writers, you know, usually. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. I'm 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 writing. I mean, you know, I've done. Um, I mean, it's, it's weird because um, you know this focus on Scarfies, this focus on Out of the Blue, but the you know the, actually the thing that I'm equally or, or, or probably more proud of is a, a tele- television feature that I made in I think 2014 um, called um, Consent, and um, and that was um, made. Um, you're bringing it up. There you uh, go. Consent, oh, my secret. My, my website still works. It's <laughs> vaguely. Um, that was about the Louise Nicholas story. Right. Right. And it was at once upon a time going to be a movie, and then we just couldn't get the couldn't couldn't get the funding together to turn it into a movie. So we yeah. made it as a, um, a a television feature. That's beautifully shot. That shot there is lovely. And well, it, it's it's. You know, it's like a really powerful piece of work. Yeah. It's amongst my best work, I think. And um, sure, it's not a movie, but um, the whole attitude was, well, we're making a movie. We're just yeah, putting yeah. it on television. And it's changed people's attitude, anecdotally anyway, it changed people's attitude towards a story that they only knew of, a complex story that they only knew of through the media and through a series of court cases. Yeah. You know, and it was it was a confusing story. So you gave nuance. Well, you can get to tell a story like yeah. that from the perspective of, um, in this case, of the character of Louise Nicholas and, um, and really understand what it's like to walk in the shoes of others, and so which was is she, what film does best. Was she right? someone who was involved in that? Like, did you get her story? Was it based on a book that had been written? Or how, how does that work? Um, it was. It was. Uh, in that case, it was. <laughs> it was technically based on a book, um, but we started writing it while Louise was still writing the book. Right. Right. So, um, and in fact, I. <laughs> so based on her book. It was based on her yeah, book. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So we yeah we, we worked with Louise on on that. But you know, I've spent many hours at her, with Louise at her kitchen table with um with her husband um you know talking through and and with um I had. You know, two writing collaborators uh, on that, um, Graham, Graham Tetley and Fiona Samuels, mm-hmm. um, who, uh, and, you know, together the three of us um, um, sort of, you know, find shape, found shape for her story and yep. tried to, you know, tried to tell it. And it's, you know, that's, that's really satisfying to do because it's, um, I figured out that there's a, we all have roles, right, in the media and, and, and the, there's, the, the roles, I think, are not, they're not better or worse from each other. They're just different and they're often related to time, right? Mm-hmm. But, so a journalist comes in right at the start, a, you know, a reporter comes in and reports the news, right? And they can, they can only do that in a certain way. They can only report what they know and uh, they can, um, um, and, and it's limited just by, um, by time and by, um, Word count, yep. you know? yep. Um, and then, um, and then over time, as the story develops, you know, a whole lot of other journalists come on, and then at some point, often a documentary person might, you know, kind of, kind of come in, or a feature writer, or a feature writer, all yeah. that stuff. So this sort of you, you learn more and more about the story as it, yeah. you know, as it, as it goes on, and then eventually, <laughs> right down the end, um, certainly in the case of Louisa's story, um, 
I get to come along, or people like me, you yeah. know. And um, and with a huge advantage. And I'm, and in this way, I'm so pleased that I did a history degree. It didn't feel relevant <laughs> at the time. And it's like, well, history degree, why am I doing this? Oh, that's right, because there's no filmmaking courses at the time <laughs> university. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's so relevant because what a historian does is they look at the past and they try to see the that try to see and find um, the the kind of the patterns, like what has what has created this. Yeah. You know? And so um, I get to it's like a huge privilege because I get to come along at the end and talk to everyone um, or everyone I can talk to, mm. and um, and then kind of filter a very complex story kind of down into its well its essence but have the luxury of time like a feature film length to you know to tell that story in a way that people can not only understand it yep. but feel it is there i'm thinking is there more of a um a weight on you uh i'm not i don't want to talk about the louise nicholas case per se but something that's still in the public eye i.e. the people are still here the repercussions from any kind of article, interview, you know, film could still hit these people than it is, for example, a David Gray who is, who is no longer here. In other words, talking to Louise, I haven't seen the – I want to watch it now, but I haven't seen it. Um, you know, obviously there is Louise's story and there's the other people in the uh, in her case's story as well. So they're real people who are still here. And if – I guess what I'm trying to say bluntly is, you know, recriminations from those outside – Louise's case, but who are still part of the story. Is that a weight on you as well, or is that easier with their still being here? Or is it okay just to tell Louise's story and be damned with what the other people say or think? Oh, I mean, there's, there's sort of two questions there, because one of them's um, kind of legal recriminations, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the other's uh, kind of a, um, a sense of moral responsibility. And um, um, legally, you do have to be careful. Um, you and we, we had to be very careful in the case of Louise's story to um, I mean we were we were very clear um, that we were telling her version of events right right so um, so that, literal disclaimers and stuff this is her perspective uh, yeah we had to do that yeah, yeah. Uh, and but that's the truth I mean you can't you know there's certain yeah. stories that that there are I mean in, in this case <laughs> in fact I remember um, you know I mean uh, I remember our lawyer advising us that um, that you know, he, he, our lawyer read the script and uh, and went, well, <laughs> his first page of his letter was like shocking. It was like, well, <laughs> you know, well, I, I, we have to be clear that, um, you know, you're defaming certain people in the most terrible of ways. Yeah. Um, and then um, and then the next sentence went along the lines of, but, um, you know, the only, the only defence you have to that is the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that in itself is a fuzzy statement because, you know, the truth to one per- person is different from, yep. from, from the other. In the end... I think it comes back to um, to um, kind of where your heart is. Like uh, uh, you know, my heart, and say for example, telling telling that story mm-hmm. or working with working with um, Fiona, principally at the end, to Fiona Samuel to to write that story w- was and to shape that story was to to set, to feel the truth of the story, to see where you know to, to just tell the events because mm-hmm. a lot of the events are undisputed. And then, in a way, put it out there, and you know, like you might do for a jury, let them make up their mind because there's, you know, there's a there's a legal truth to a story, mm-hmm. you know, what you can prove in in, in court. Yeah. Um, but there's also a human truth, 
right? Which is what our instincts tell us when we hear the facts, you know? And um, Like a guttural truth, that thing that you feel in your stomach deep down. Yeah, you know, does this does this resonate? You know, yeah. I mean, look, and, you know, we have this all the time and we had this... Um, Another a, a slightly more recent example um, might be the Finding Neverland documentary, yep. Neverland documentary, um, that that really, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, um, I mean, it was tell- definitely telling one version of a truth, right? And um, you know, Michael Jackson wasn't there to defend himself, and mm-hmm. they didn't didn't have his lawyers, you know, making or you know, supporters particularly making making kind of comments, but they th- those two guys were putting a truth out there that their truth. And letting us, the audience, hear it, a truth that hadn't been heard or their mm. truth that hadn't been heard before in that long form, and letting us make up our minds. You know? And, of course, in that case, overwhelmingly, I mean, it was hard to watch that documentary and not, you know, unless you were <laughs> a real diehard. <laughs> um, it was certainly hard for me to watch that documentary and not kind of feel that their truth resonated because mm. of all sorts of reasons, including the sort of detail. Um uh, I guess um, you know, truth is an amorphous thing, isn't it? You see it in court all the time. It seems that we live in a world where um, people are more and more prepared to lie under oath, including the president. Am I allowed to say including the president? I think that. I can say the fucking president of the fucking United States. You can at even the push his fake news button. <laughs> yeah, <if> you, <laughs> um, you know that's we're living in a world where we're 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 being kind of bombarded by untruths, and untruths yeah. are. It, somehow it feels more acceptable. The, the sort of things that are happening in, you know, in, in the United States at the moment would not have been acceptable, would, would have, <laughs> 20, you know, even 20 years ago, you know. I mean, they might have happened, but they would have happened sort of underground. Now, I don't know, it's, it is. It's fake news, it's truth versus lies, and it feels like we, we're... Um, it's, I think it's one of the biggest issues confronting us today. Do you think that, like, I mean, it's interesting you bring up Trump. He gets brought up by everybody. I mean, I'm he's got a little yeah, Trump right. doll. No, no, no. It's a topic I, I love to talk about. But <laughs> thinking of it from from what you do as a creative filmmaker, um, do you think his world, I mean, I think it's unquestionable that his example of being untruthful makes it more acceptable to be untruthful to a sector of society. And on some level, you know, in the entertainment world, we're untruthful. It's like I always watch Penn and Teller and they talk about, you know, it's actually um, immoral to do what they do, fooling people mm. and tricking people unless the audience agrees to it. And buying a ticket and coming through the door means you've agreed for us to basically fuck with you. It's a moral that, contract. Yeah, so, so you've done it. Whereas putting it out in the public like he's done, is that going to affect... Uh, like how we receive and accept pieces of entertainment. You know, he's got a, he hasn't put out a contract, but he's started to stir the world up to make uh, maybe a, a less truthful place and being less truthful, being acceptable. Is that going to have a flow on to accepting or m- making art where typically we need to have that moral contract, but he's saying, don't need a moral contract, we'll just do it. Or am I reach? I might be reaching. Am I reaching? I think. I think. I think. I think you're reaching. Okay. Uh, I think you're reaching because um, art and particularly entertainment um, has, in the norm, yeah, um, always been. There's always been a moral contract with with the audience that this is um, this is made up. Yeah. You know, and the audience 
goes there knowing that. Even at a very young age, kids yeah, will the, go. The, they always talk about the suspension of disbelief. Yeah. yeah. It's the, you know, you go in a movie and you're like, right. And, and almost from, from a technical point of view, I've always I've heard filmmakers say that, you know, the suspension of disbelief from a technical point of view is you, you've got to do everything you can technically to make sure you don't take people out of it. So make sure the camera doesn't, you know, cut to and you see a boom come into the shot because that cut. They takes them out of the story and then they go oh this is fake so yeah it's a suspension of disbelief yeah so you know so essentially people are, are kind of coming to a magic show anyway so they yeah. they, they know it yeah. right the, the, the massive difference <laughs> when it's the president doing the magic show is that well no actually that's that's not storytelling it's that's that's real life mm. you know um, and and I guess that's you know it's the role of the media in the end to um, try to <laughs> you know uh Separate fact from fiction. It'd be interesting to see if that's even possible. So you're you're interested in politics? You keep an eye on it? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't, you can't, not really, can you? Is it something that they're interested in, or is it just that idea that? When what, are you, mayor, what are you saying? Do you think I want to be mayor? No, I'm just saying because <laughs> hey, every, Rob Sarkis, mayor of Dunedin. No. Everyone here, I think you are the honorary mayor anyway. Aren't you? Doesn't that come with a territory? Uh, no, no one's given me any keys. No, I think I, I think I, I think I depict. Unfortunately, I, I depict. I, when I, whenever I, mean, I do a film in Dunedin, I sort of either either to, to make it look really cold and grey, which is untrue. <laughs> it is it is untrue. It is beautiful blue skies out there. I'm, I'm genuinely, as we all are, wearing a t-shirt, and it's uh, absolutely gorgeous outside. Um, when That's we shot, what happens when you shoot 16 mil in Dunedin in the winter or whatever. I don't, did you shoot? Was it the winter? No, we shot in this. We shot just kind was, of around this time of year, and like um, and uh, we shot for six weeks. I could you not. For five of those weeks, it was beautiful like this because right. it always is around exam time. It's just yeah. a, it's, it's a, it's <laughs> God's, God's way of fucking up students, <laughs> like, like, giving them great weather while they're indoors doing their exams. And um, yeah, for one week, um, spread over various days, um, it was grey. And whenever it was grey, we went outside and shot outside. So you know, so that's why they haven't, you know, they haven't given me the keys to the city. Uh, you know, still to come, still <laughs> to come. Hey, um, just to wrap up, and just because you know you're explaining being involved in television, etc. As well, I'm interested in your perspective or thoughts around you know where media is going moving forward you know like the death of television we're hearing about tv3 potentially being well mm. is being sold potentially closing down mm. that's up you know, out there um you're gonna buy it though right uh, i actually i actually humbly think that uh people like nz on air need to start to think about people who are putting out digital products and telling new zealand stories mm. and maybe move away from putting all their funding into quote unquote the mainstream because hashtag the doc uh, yeah, <laughs> because I think that if we want to fund New Zealand stories, there are more effective, cost-effective certainly ways of doing it now. Um, I think they already know that. I mean, that's why they've um, they've got the funding neutral, the um, platform neutral um, model. You know, so it's I think I think that that's a, um, I think that's a conscious evolution. I think that I think that we in New Zealand uh, in general are a little bit behind the rest of the world when it comes to like media mm. um, I firmly believed and I said it when I was working in radio a decade ago that we would never get that kind of digital radio world like they've got um, in, in the US where Howard Stern is because we're not big enough to do that it would it would, it would leapfrog and go straight to the internet which is pretty much what it's done mm. so no one's going to hit Sirius FM over here in their you know DAB stereo in their car because we just have these things now yep. and, and yep. we listen to radio from all over the world or podcasts or whatever um, I think that we're still a bit behind in uh, the public of New Zealand understanding perhaps how the digital media work, world works. I think they've caught on to it with, with television, mm -hmm. you know, Netflix, Spark, Sport, 
uh, Disney Plus started, that kind of thing. Um, I think that the audio content component of, of what's happening offshore hasn't quite hit here yet. I think it's to come, hopefully. Uh, uh, look, um, I mean, it's a massive. Ch- the whole thing's a massive challenge. One of one of the one of the one of the things that that made me want to get into um, filmmaking was television, mm-hmm. right? Because as a kid, growing up in the seventies and eighties, um, I could see the power of you know of television when there was only one one two or three channels. You mm-hmm. know, you could you could literally have. I mean, in fact, I mean, I started making uh, short films when I was a kid at at high school uh, and entering them into a, a television film competition, the spot right. on film competition. Spot on. Spot Dan, on. Remember with spot Danny on? Watson. Yeah, you're old enough to remember spot on. <laughs> and uh, with Danny Watson and Ian Taylor and all that. And, um, and the reason that I did that kind of wasn't really because I wanted to be a filmmaker. It was because I saw something amazing, almost magical in being able to take something that I could film on my, you know, little super eight camera, mm-hmm. you know, that I, that I, saved very hard to buy and um and then have that watched by literally a million people because everyone watched Spot yeah of on. course there was only two million people in the country so it was you know <laughs> it was like a million people a 50 percent share that's sort not of, bad <laughs> yeah that's right um um all at the same time on a on a sunday night at, at whatever time it was 5 30 like that was um magical and and powerful Right, because it was a sort of a bringing together of everyone. I mean, and it's slightly egocentric. <laughs> so, oh, they're all watching my thing. Mm. <laughs> but, um, but, um, but I think that in a small country, you know, th- th- like those sorts of moments—not <laughs> watching my film—but those sorts of moments that television has traditionally been able to create, it, 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 the, the sort of cohesive moments where we all come together as one. That you know, arguably a. a, a, a Often nowadays, sporting and always have been sporting moments, yeah. you know, World Cup finals, etc. Um, um, I think are very valuable because they they bring us together. In fact, I think that remember the um, remember the the America's Cup a few years ago when we had that that week of um, of depression, basically, where we were we went from you know hero to zero. It's uh, because we were up by six to nil or something, and they came one seven in a row. That yeah, one, well, yeah. yeah, that one, that one. Well, you know, I lived through that with everyone else, right? <laughs> and um, and I remember coming, and you know, and it was as kind of horrible and painful to watch for me as it was for you know anyone else who even has a, the vaguest interest of sport. And believe me, my interest in sport is only the vaguest. But I'm you know, it was that was that was more than sport. That was, yeah. that was human. Human drama. Yeah. <laughs> I, I came out at the end of that feeling like, almost feeling pleased <laughs> that we'd lost because we, as a country, we'd cohered. You know, we right. had shared the same emotions together, right? We were, that we were, we were unified. You know, sure, we weren't unified in Yahoo, we won, but we were unified in a whole other way that was, that was actually more powerful and more resonant and, um, and um, and you know and and perhaps more defining, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, you, you could argue that something similar happened in Christchurch. After I, Christchurch I was just I was just year. thinking if you were describing the coming together, and and you had if I'd come halfway into this conversation and I hadn't heard, although you were smiling, probably what you wouldn't have been doing if we were talking about Christchurch, mm. but it's just those words about coming together, cohesiveness, you could say. Tragedy. You could say Aramawana. You could say Christchurch. It's a similar sort of coming together. Yeah. No, together. I'm not. I'm. I'm not advocating for for, for tragedy. But I think no. that the, um, the 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 challenge because we're talking about media, really, yep. the challenge for our media, be it radio, TV, to a lesser extent, film, is um, 
is that everything's so multi-strand now. You know, we're all on our different Facebook feeds, and we're you know we're all kind of basically watching different things. And 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 most people, especially most younger people, are not watching things from New Zealand. Let's be let's face yeah. it. You know, um, the the there's lots of advantages in all that because we're we're just our minds are buzzing. We've got all the stuff. You know, we're not and we're we're no longer isolated as a country. We're it's, being here is no different from being in New York, really, because mm-hmm. we're kind of um, culturally infused with, you know, the culture of the world, which is a world culture. But we're not infused with whatever it is to be New Zealanders. You know, we're, there's a there's a, um, and I, I think that's part of the role of the of of the media, and it's a real problem. I think it's going to be a it's going to be a problem because it's um it's we're going to become I think um, kind of more dispersed. So yeah, mm. we need yeah New Zealand on air. TVNZ, TV3, if it continues to Do you exist. like the idea of TVNZ basically becoming the BBC? You know, being uh, TVNZ1 especially, linking more directly with RNZ and becoming a, a big public broadcaster as most would understand what a public broadcaster is? Um, <laughs> I like the idea of, of, of TVNZ1 being a public broadcast station, um, sort of doing what Māori TV are doing, but for... You know, for for, for more than um, for more for more than Maori language reasons, mm-hmm. um, um, I'm suspicious about the idea of TVNZ joining with Radio New Zealand because I think in Radio New Zealand you've already got um, a strong, in a way, multi-platform um, voice. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, I think if I fear if that was combined with TVNZ. You will make you might make TVNZ better, but you will likely make Radio New Zealand worse. Oh, very interesting. That's personal opinion, but I'm um, I fear that. All right, just before we go, I've got one more thing to say. Mm-hmm. Judy Bailey. Mm. <laughs> How did no, we I was, forget I that? Gonna, I was, was going to say it was Judy Bailey. I feel very. I, I'm, I really. Yeah, I feel very. I don't know. I don't know Judy, but I feel sort of sad that the name didn't, didn't just come off yeah. but do you think like you know just without getting the conversation started up again like I was just thinking as you're saying you know it was you know like you're talking about the tragedies and so forth that brought, brought people together um, because back in the day you know they'd be like oh you know around the like literally the water cooler be like oh did you watch um, that show last night Friends. and they had you know a third of the people would have because there was three stations or two or 50% of people would have because there was two stations now it's like oh have you seen this and such have you seen the latest episode of Breaking Bad it's like oh no no I haven't watched that yet because I haven't binge watched that yet and it's like oh, what are you binge watching and so like, if it's not the same you've got nothing to talk about so I'm well, that's, 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 that's why for the last you know six years could or have, so could I've be been that. focused on television yeah. because could have, could for, be for a Netflix period it was those yeah, of course it's the, of course it's the reason the reason for the so societal yeah. breakdown is all because we're not <laughs> gathering around the water cooler to talk about um, uh, uh, what is her name uh, Angela Diordani getting her um, breasts out on well, we, TV no, we, but we, st- we still are getting around the water cooler talking about whatever the cool new Netflix shows is I mean yeah. you can't go to a you can't have dinner at someone's place and not sort of share Netflix tips or yeah, you know so um, but, but um, I don't think we're gathering around the water cooler to talk about um, the New Zealand shows yeah, yeah that's, right. that's the difference and, and maybe that's just inevitable but um, you know we you know th- our, our culture, uh, we we need to have a mirror on our culture, and our media is the mirror on our culture, and it both both reflects the culture and helps push it forward. Um, you know, I mean, Taika, <laughs> circle back to Taika. Yeah. You know, he's, you know, he's been an amazing mirror on our culture through you know through his films. But um, <laughs> we can't rely on Taika. <laughs> we need to um, continue to, um, 
I think, support and and bring New Zealand stories to New Zealanders. Otherwise, we lose our New Zealandness. Look, that, that, we got to wrap really, up really quickly. Like that's because you know, like well, you kind of already alluded to this with TVNZ, and it's kind of what you know me thinking my thoughts out. If TVNZ was literally became like the BBC, and they didn't kind of almost like that, they don't have to make a profit. There's no there's no business model for lack of a better word. So they just make stuff, and so almost that you know they get NZ only funding. They maybe get film commission funding. So and so stories like the things you've been making, um, made for TV fe- features and so forth, when it, about New Zealand stories. You know, for example, maybe if Out of the Blue was made today it might have actually been co-funded by TVNZ or something like that to be shown on TVNZ premiere on Sunday night sort of thing um, in a way that means that you know going for that model is actually going to be beneficial for New Zealand in a way potentially yeah well may- maybe it, it just depends if anyone um, you know under the age of 60 is going to be watching television in the next yeah, 10 they're years not. they're not yeah. they're yeah. not you know we'll put um, yeah. but still they said radio was going to die right I never believe that working in radio. <laughs> I think I think it's harder now. I listened well, to when bre- television came in that radio was going to die. I listened to breakfast radio the other day for the first time in a very long time, and I almost shot myself in the head. Not quite, yeah, but almost. Just yeah. the number of inane voice breaks doing the same thing, followed by advertising, followed by a song I can listen to on Spotify. Mm. So I think certainly, um, and you know, that again, we, we hold up these things and go, we go, you know, iTunes and we go to uh, podcasts and we go to internet radio and I, I think that it's all ta- all the mainstream media is taking a hit at the moment look it's I'm, I'm the one that's keeping time here saying we've got to wrap up <laughs> but before we do I want to ask you one very simple question about Taika about television uh, have you seen the new what we do in the shadow series oh not I actually the haven't TV seen series. I haven't seen the, the new one um, but my brother um, Duncan uh, was a writer on it he worked on it he wrote um, some of the episodes so tell your brother yeah better than the film mm-hmm. one of the best television series I've seen in the last 12 months mm. and so excited to see more of them. Honestly, I think, I, do, I, I know when I say that, especially New Zealanders go, oh, be still my heart, better than the film. <laughs> I do honestly think, and I think possibly the length of being able to, that, that through line of story with a bit more time, mm. um, I think is better than the film. It's amazing and it's a must watch. Great. Cool. <laughs> cool. Rob Sarkis, thank you for coming in. We appreciate so much you giving us some time and um We'll see you again sometime. You're welcome. I'll be I'll be I'll be somewhere. I'll be making stuff, hopefully. Alrighty, there you go. Didn't say this in the podcast, I don't think, but if you want to find out more about Rob, robsarkies.com is his website as well. So thank you, Rob. Um, right, uh, coming up tomorrow, Julia Grace will be in studio with us having a chat about uh, all sorts of things. She's a mate from way, way back. Uh, she is now currently sort of travelling the country very regular, regularly talking about mental wellness. Just last night she was in Wamaru talking about stress triggers, anxiety and mental wellness. Uh, and I'm fairly mental, so it will be good to get Julia in studio to maybe sort me out. Julia Grace in studio tomorrow uh, afternoon. I can't remember the exact time, but if you go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash DEPT of conversation, or of course through that new URL, you can find Facebook which is thatdoc.nz, you'll find all that information there. And then as we lead up to Christmas, a bunch of other uh, conversations to be had. Uh, Come and like us on Facebook. It's a good way to stay up to date with what's coming up. We've started using the Facebook event page to let people uh, know what's happening when. Really easy way to get across to you who is on the way. So head to the Facebook page, head to the URL. If you're listening to us on iTunes, Uh, please feel free to subscribe, uh, to like the podcast, to maybe review it and give us a score as well. 
uh, because that all helps the iTunes algorithms get our content out to more people, which we'd appreciate as well. All right, until we see you next time, have yourself a splendid day. Hooroo.